0: Welcome to the Rocky Valley Podcast. This is Pastor Jason Moe. We're glad you stopped in to have a listen, and we hope that this blesses you in some way. If you have your Bibles, open them up to the book of James. While you open to the book of James, uh, I would like to uh, just invite you, uh, for those of you that would, that would like to and those of you that haven't, uh, we had the contractor leave the plastic down, uh, kind of, that had been kind of bordering us away from the uh, education wing. Uh, had him leave it down on purpose. I thought there may be some of you that might want to take a, a stroll, and they got some of, the, uh, some of the lights working again where you can see. So if any of you are interested in taking a stroll down the hallway, I invite you to, to do that. Uh, as the excitement for this project really starts to, uh, to build, uh, as we get closer and closer to, uh, to the end of this, uh, we are hopeful that the classrooms will be available to us again in two weeks. Uh, now, that is, everything has to go perfect for that to be the case. Uh, but that being said, hopefully three weeks at least, Now that doesn't mean the project will be 100% complete, uh, but it could mean that our classrooms will at least be available to us again. So really excited with that. If you'd like to take a journey down the hallway, I invite you to do so. I do tell you that you do it with fair warning. Uh, I am am giving you this this disclaimer. Uh, It is a project under construction, so be careful. There, There may be a broken light bulb. There may be something on the floor. So just know that you enter at your, at your own risk somewhat, but I did walk through there earlier. It is pretty, pretty safe, and so if you want to take a look, you're more than welcome uh, to do that. I know uh, when the plastic was up, I noticed that every service, the plastic had holes in the corner, so I think some of you were going anyway, uh, but I, I told them just leave the plastic down this week. Uh, there wasn't no sense in wasting plastic, so, uh, but again, you're invited to do that. But James chapter 1. And we'll be looking only at verse 1 tonight as we really... uh, Tonight's going to be a little different kind of message. Um, Tonight's going to be more of a a groundwork type of message. We're going to be preaching through the book of James on Sunday nights. And I came to this book of James um, because really as we've worked through... Uh, so many things with the fire of God and the spirit of God and we've come out of revival and we've had new souls getting saved and we've had all of these things uh, and we've talked about focus and all of that. I think it's also important to to study in the book of James because one, it's one of my favorite books of the Bible and I know you hear that every time we start on a new study through a book of the Bible that it, that it seems to be whichever one I'm studying at that time has become my favorite but this has always been one of my favorites because it's really a look into what it looks like to be a Christian practically speaking so so it's really kind of a look at once you get saved here are the things that you're going to be doing and so i've titled this introduction faith with boots on And I title it that because really that's the best description of the book of James that I've ever been given and I've ever come up with is that it is really a book about your faith with its work boots on. It's kind of a blue-collar look at what it'll look like once you get saved. There's not really a more practical book in all of the Bible. And so it's kind of how you put it in practice. And it's going to be very exciting, I think, as we get into some of these subjects. But tonight we're going to really just try to lay a groundwork so that as we go through some of the subjects that we're going to touch on in the next few weeks, uh, we will understand a little background of the book of James and who James is and what the purpose of the letter is and who he's writing to. And so uh, I just ask you to kind of, kind of bear with me. It's going to be a little different. I may not spit and stomp and scream, but I may. Sometimes it just happens when I don't even think it's coming. But uh, it's going to be more of a groundwork type of, of, of message tonight. And so I said James is a blue-collar approach. ...to several other areas in the Bible, and here's what I would mean. There are several places in the Bible where the tone and tenor are similar... ...in terms of of it's kind of a test of your salvation. Not so much a kind of how to get saved kind of book. In fact, it doesn't really deal with or speak of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. It doesn't really deal with or speak of the resurrection of Jesus Christ per se... ...but it more deals with once you've accepted Jesus... These are the things that you're going to be doing if you have a true salvation. In other words, if you have genuine salvation, this is how it's going to play out in your life. And I would say that we should be willing to examine our salvation. I know it's a subject that we don't always like to talk about because we're... We're really quick to throw out that once saved, always saved, aren't we? Really quick to throw out, well, why should we examine our salvation? Once we're saved, we're always saved. But I think it's important that we examine our salvation because let me just give you this statistic. Gosh, what a terrible word. Let me give you this stat real quick. In this part of the country, when a survey was passed around, now this survey was done in the early 2000s, so it is a little older. But when a survey was done in this part of the country, It was determined that 80% of people said that they identified themselves as a Christian. 80% of people said in this part of the country that they were Christian. This is in the state of Tennessee. 80% said they were Christian. Yet right now in the state of Tennessee, 44% of people claim no church affiliation. They do not regularly attend any religious activity or any religious organization at all. Now, I'm not saying that that means that 44% of the people in Tennessee are not saved. I'm not saying that you always have to be part of a church in order to be saved. But I am saying that generally speaking, people who love Jesus, people who follow God, people who are Christians, true Christians, generally want to be a part of a body of believers. And so that's why I say we need to examine our salvation because quite often in this part of the country, we have the type of salvation that was garnered in a moment but did not have any results in someone's life. And that's not a true salvation because you cannot come into contact with the same Jesus Christ that I know and go on living the same way you did before you met him. You will not be the same once you are saved. And so we need to examine our salvation. Uh, And I think there's no more genuine question than we could ever ask ourselves than how does my salvation look? How, How am I playing, how am I living out my salvation? So let's look at a few things from scripture though and you don't have to turn there. But in Psalm seventeen three, David writes that though he has proven my heart and he has tested me. In Psalms 26, 1 and 2, David says, Judge me, O Lord, for I've walked in my integrity. I've trusted also in the Lord. Therefore, I will not slide. Examine me, O Lord, and prove me. Test my heart. Test my mind. Galatians 6, 4 says every man should prove... His own work. 1 Corinthians 11 says, Every man should examine himself. And this is in relation to when he comes to the Lord's table. Those are just a few examples. I had 49 examples that I found that used the exact word examine or test. Examine, test, or prove. I'm sorry. Examine, test, or prove. 47, 49, something like that. It's in my notes. But that I could have thrown in there. I just picked a few. My point is that the idea of examining oneself is not new. It's not something that's unheard of in Scripture. It's not something that we shouldn't do. It is a very biblical idea. It's something that they talked about in the Old Testament. It's something that they did in the New Testament. They would test their salvation, prove their salvation, ask God to move on. them. One of the greatest sections in all of Scripture on this ideal is found in the Gospel of Matthew, beginning in chapter 5 and running through chapter 7. Good Bible scholars will know when I say Matthew chapter 5 through Matthew chapter 7 that I am referring to the sermon... On the Mount. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount has a three chapter sermon where he is basically dealing with this very subject how to prove that you're really a child of God, how to prove that you've really been saved. Jesus unmasks in this sermon hypocritical worship, counterfeit righteousness, false salvation. Uh, He begins when he talks in the Beatitudes about how the attitude of someone who is saved will look. So so what is your attitude? He goes on to speak on how you would influence others once you are saved. He goes on to touch on true obedience for someone who really knows Jesus as his Savior. He talks about how we'll be truly righteous when the source of our righteousness is Jesus Christ. He talks about how we will worship. How we will worship Jesus once we know Jesus. And he talks about how we will get along with one another in relationships once we know Jesus. And the reason that I touched on the Sermon on the Mount so deeply there and went into a little more example is because in my personal opinion, and in the opinion I wish it was mine that I first got, I could have written a book and I'd be a wealthy man. But it's the, it's the opinion of several other scholars. But James is kind of a blue-collar commentary of the Sermon on the Mount. It's kind of a commentary on Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. How do we live out our faith? And James is sort of writing... Almost that commentary book, so any of you' read any commentaries on a particular book of the Bible, you know what I'm talking about. It's where they kind of pull it in and break it down. This is kind of James's attempt to, to break down the Sermon on the Mount, uh, and it kind of plays out that way. and so let's all stand to our feet as we honor the reading of this one word. one verse from the book of James. James chapter one, verse one, James a bond servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad. Greetings, let's pray. Father God, God, we pray that you would ordain our time to glorify you, Lord. That your Holy Spirit would dwell among us and that it would draw us nearer to you, Lord God, and that you would use this study of this great epistle, Lord, that we may reveal things in our lives that, that we need to change, Lord that we might ultimately be closer to you, God. And God, we ask that you would have your way and your will in this service and that you would be glorified, and it is in your precious name that we pray. And all of God's children sin, and you may be seated. It's not often I go through the first point before we read the Scripture, but I kind of got away with myself this evening. I apologize, sort of. So for those of you that are wondering, that wasn't all introduction. That was actually the first point. So this message will not be nearly as long as this morning's. You can take a deep breath and praise God, okay? In fact, for those of you that are wondering, this morning's message was actually a synopsis of two messages. I was going to preach the last half tonight and the first half this morning, and I got going so much that I didn't even stop where I was supposed to stop. So you got free preaching this morning, and you're getting extra preaching this evening, so you ought to be just tickled to death. You're not even laughing, so apparently you're not listening. I'll open up the Quran and we'll finish up this session. But So we understand the epistle of James is, is really the testing of one's salvation. He's writing this, uh, having us examine ourselves, and the purpose and style of the book is that. But let us look also at this very beginning uh, of this first verse when he says, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's look at the author for just a minute of this, of this letter. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So who, who is this guy? We really have about four options as to who James could be. First, the option is James, the son of Alphaeus, who is one of the twelve disciples. He's mentioned in Matthew 10. And in Luke 1, and and that's where we see his name, is anywhere that he's listed with a list of disciples. We don't know much else about James, son of Alphaeus. The only other time that we think we may see something about him is when Matthew is mentioned also to be the son of Alphaeus, and we think he may be the brother of Matthew, but quite honestly, we don't even know that for sure because there may have been another Alphaeus. So we don't really know much about James. We know he was a disciple, and we know that he was sent out to preach, and he know that he was sent out to teach, and we know that he walked with Jesus. But not a lot else is said about him, and so it's kind of unlikely that James, son of Alphaeus, would have been the one who who kind of grew into prominence in the Jewish church who would have been the one that written this letter. Another option would be James, the father of Judas, not Judas Iscariot, but the other Judas who was a disciple. But we don't see anything else about him other than the fact that his son became one of Jesus' disciples. Now the third option is a slightly better one. It's James, the brother of John, the son of Zebedee. You'll remember him as one of the sons of thunder. He was certainly an important enough figure in the Bible that he could have very well written a letter that would have been put into the canonization of Scripture. He was one of Jesus' inner circle. You oftentimes heard of Peter, James, and John. And so the the brother of John, the son of Zebedee, was in the inner circle of Jesus, would have certainly had access to Jesus at a a close way, could have certainly gleaned things that would have made him worthy of, of penning this letter. He was the first apostle that would be martyred, not the first martyr that would be Stephen, but the first apostle that would be martyred in history. And so when you think of all that, that does kind of seem like a good option. And there are some uh, who had originally thought that that's who had written this letter. But the problem is, when you read in Acts chapter 2 about Peter being in jail, it says that James had just been killed by Herod. And unfortunately, James, the son of thunder, is the James that had just been beheaded. And so at the time when this epistle was written, James, the son of thunder, was in glory. And so with all those considerations, it really leaves us one other James, who I believe is most likely and most accepted as the author of this book, and that is James, the brother of Jesus, or half-brother of Jesus, you might say. So let's look, let's look at him just a little bit. He was the son of Mary and Joseph. Most likely, he was the firstborn son of Mary and Joseph after Jesus. So you had Mary had Jesus. Obviously, the father was... The Holy Spirit, God was the Father, and so he, they went on. They were betrothed. They got married. Then they had several children, uh, the first of which was most likely James, the one who had later penned this epistle. But early on in Jesus' ministry, we find that Jesus' family just did not really recognize that he was the Messiah, his brothers particularly. We see it several times suggested in Scripture, but in John 7, 5, we see it most clearly spelled out as it says, neither did his brothers believe in him. Now, I don't have to give you all of the Greek terms and an interpretation for you to understand that what that says is that they did not believe in him. His very own brothers, as he was getting ready to go into Cana, did not necessarily believe that he was the Messiah. And I want you to think about that just for a minute. Wouldn't that have been a tough pill to swallow? I mean, this this guy's been raised as your brother. As far as you're concerned, best you can tell, he's the son of a carpenter. He's just like you. I'm sure there was some resentment on the part of the brothers of Jesus and some hesitation in believing in him as something more than just the kid that they had grown up with. And can you imagine growing up with Jesus as your brother? I mean, I've heard some of you complain about how you have a sibling that thinks they're perfect, but how about really having one? You know? I mean, I've heard Liette talk about her. Her little sister never got in trouble growing up, and I'm like, Jesus really didn't get in trouble because he never did anything wrong. If he never sinned, then that means he never dishonored his father and mother, so he probably never got no whipping unless Mary just did like Lieta every once in a while, just whipped him when he woke up, just cause. <laughs> Don't tell her I said that. She's usually whipping me, but, but imagine that. Here's your brother. And everybody keeps saying, and he keeps saying as he's growing up, I'm the one that the prophecies are about. I'm to be about my father's business, not the carpenter father. I mean my heavenly father. As a brother, just put yourself in James's shoes for a minute because I want you to relate to this journey that he's going on. There's got to be some resentment there and some hesitation to recognize Jesus as something more. But we know that something more happened because he got to the point that he wrote this epistle about what it means to test your salvation. What it means to test what you believe in and to believe in Christ as your Lord and Savior. We know that this person who wrote this epistle, this brother to Jesus, would would go on to be a pillar in the church early on. He would be the one that people would go and see. So, so how did we get there? I think something happened. And long about 1 Corinthians fifteen seven, 7, we get a little insight into what happened. It says that Jesus died for our sins according to the Scripture. He was seen by Peter the Twelve, 500 brethren, and then James and all the apostles. So it specifically says in 1 Corinthians that Jesus, once he was resurrected, presented himself to to his disciples to about 500 brethren. And it says that one of those people that he went to specifically was his brother James. He went to see him after the resurrection. And I believe that somewhere between John chapter 7 and 1 Corinthians chapter chapter 15's story of the account, I believe that the brother of Jesus became one of the followers of Jesus as he saw what happened on that cross, as he recognized that Jesus was more than just my brother. He was the Messiah. James went through the same journey. What I'm saying is he went through the same journey that all of the rest of us have had to go through at some point if we call ourselves Christian. We've gone from seeing Jesus to believing in Jesus. We've gone from understanding the historical account of Jesus to understanding the spiritual depth of Jesus. And so we know that this happened. I mean, in Acts chapter 12, Peter is miraculously released from the prison. And where do they tell him to go? Go and see James and the brethren. He had gone from unbelief to being a pillar of the church. And so this is why when he starts this letter... He says these words, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we're not careful to think a little bit about the journey that James has been on to get to this point, we would be inclined just to read over that as any other introduction. But when you think about the fact that when he says, I am a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, he is ultimately saying, I have submitted myself To my own brother in the fact that he is my Lord. He was my earthly brother and I recognized that he was my Messiah. Now I don't know about you guys. I don't have any earthly brothers so I can't relate. But I've seen how most of you act with yours. And I cannot imagine you getting to the point where you'd say oh he's my Savior. And so think about this journey that James has taken. Think about the authority by which he's penning this letter. Think about how he gained and garnered the respect and the admonition and the ability to even even pin this down as you read through the rest of this letter. So we see that the book is about testing our salvation. We see that James, who became a bondservant of God, who got saved later, you might say, is the one who wrote the letter. And so now let's look at this last sentence real quick. It says, James, a bondservant of God to the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad. And so we're going to look at, at who James is writing this letter to. He's writing this letter, it says, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed, the twelve tribes who are scattered. And so, so what we know is when he says that to the twelve tribes, he's saying the sons of Israel, the sons of, of Jacob, you might say, those ...who are counted as children of God. Those who are supposed to fall into that category. And so we know that he is writing this letter... ...not to unbelievers primarily, but to believers... He's writing this letter to those who are under persecution. Why does it say they were dispersed? Well, under this time, following the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus, Christianity wasn't cool anymore. Christianity wasn't the thing to do anymore. The government didn't accept Christianity. In fact, the government hated Christianity. So they're scattered abroad. They're all, they're all pushed away, and they all flee from Rome and flee from Jerusalem and they all have to go into a hiding of sorts and they have to go their own way. And so James begins to write this letter to people that are enduring an intense persecution. People who feel like they cannot say the name Jesus publicly. People who feel like that, that, they, that they're not supposed to be able to be Christians publicly. And James understood as he wrote this letter that there was a greater purpose to what was going on in terms of them being scattered. James understood that there was something more going on than the government winning. James understood that there was something more going on than a dispersion of Christians, that there was a spreading of the gospel that was really about to take place. James understood that, and I believe that James understood that because he had gone from a place of unbelief, To a place of belief. And and how had he really done that? James went from unbelief to belief because there was a time when it looked like the world had won and Jesus had died. But then he saw Jesus resurrected. And he realized that this was the Messiah. This was the Son of God. This was more than a man. And that the world and Satan and, and sin was not going to win. And so he recognized that even when the things looked bad, even when the brethren were scattered, even when the people were dispersed, that it was not going to stop the move of Jesus Christ. It was not going to stop the move of Christianity. So he pins this letter. And why does he pen this letter to them? He understood that they were far away and out of familiarity with their place. That They were not in their homeland anymore. They were not comfortable and it would be difficult to remain holy in their living. How did he know that it would be difficult for them to remain holy in their living? Well think about what he had to look at historically. What happened to the people of God when they went into captivity or persecution throughout the Old Testament? When when they went in uh, to the Egyptian slavery after a period of time they began to live so much like Egyptians that it took 40 years of wandering in the wilderness to walk it off. What happened when they went into Babylonian captivity? So many of them began to eat of the things of Babylon that there are only a few that are mentioned in Scripture that would have remained faithful. If they had all remained faithful, the book of Daniel wouldn't be nearly as impressive. What happened when they went into captivity and we see the stories of the book of Esther and we see all of these things that go on through the Old Testament. And so James understood that as Christians, it's tough when we're isolated. It's tough when we're out on our own to remain living a holy life. And so he pens this letter to them and he wants them to say, I need you to check yourself against the way you're living. What are the things that you are doing? Are you living your life the way that you're supposed to be? And if you're not, why not? What is the reason why you're not living for Christ anymore? But I think there was another thing that James recognized. I think that James recognized that this was not an opportunity for Christianity to be stopped. It was an opportunity for Christianity to grow like never before. All of a sudden, the government had pushed the Christians out. And what they had essentially done is taken the gospel and just pushed it as far as they could push it. What happens when the gospel of Jesus Christ gets proclaimed in a foreign land? People get saved. The gospel spreads like wildfire. Why? Because it cannot be contained. The story that brings people to the knowledge that their creator is their sustainer and their savior is something that cannot be contained. That's why missionaries go to foreign lands now and proclaim Jesus. And people who have never read the Bible say things like, so that is the God that I felt on that hillside. Missionaries in the fields have told that very story that that when people are scattered abroad and they get there, people that have never seen a Bible and they begin to have the Bible revealed to them and they're told who God is and they're told that that's it, they say things like, that's the God that I felt send the wind. They recognized, having never read the Bible, that there is a God and that he is amazing and he is their creator. And so James understood that they were scattered into foreign lands, but they needed to keep the faith and they needed to keep strong and they needed to live the Christian life because there were going to be people watching them who were going to get saved as a result of the way they lived their lives. And so what does this have to do with us? Well, I believe first and foremost, it has to do with us this entire book because we can sometimes feel as if we're dispersed. Sometimes we feel like we're dispersed in the workplace when not everybody there is a Christian. Oh, yeah, it's easy to come to church. Everybody here seems to be on the same team. It's easy to proclaim Jesus and smile and be happy about the things of the Lord. But sometimes when we get to work, we can start to feel... Like we're part of the dispersed or the scattered or we're living in a land where it's not normal to be Christian. I just told you that 44% of the people in the state of Tennessee claim no religious affiliation. None. So to be quite honest with you, we're right on the edge of when we walk out the front door being dispersed. When you go to Walmart, one out of every two people you see doesn't go to church anywhere and doesn't care. Not that they're between churches or looking for churches. They don't go and they don't care. And so we can begin to feel dispersed. And so we need a book like the book of James so that we can recognize what we're supposed to be doing when we feel like we don't know what we're supposed to be doing. When we we don't know if we're living out our faith. And one of the biggest reasons is not just for our own well-being, But by living out our faith, other people see Jesus. Other people see that there's something that makes us different. There's something that separates us from what we were. And so I ask you this evening a very simple question, and we're getting ready to close. Are we living out our faith? And if we're not, why not? Are we living out our faith? And if we are not, why not? So how do we respond to it? I pray that you would ask God to reveal any areas in your life where you're not living out your faith. As we go through this study, I pray that people come to a knowledge of something in their life that they are not living out their faith the way that God has called them to do. Pray that God will reveal to you how to use this book as a measuring stick of how you live your faith. And maybe by examining your faith, who knows, somebody may recognize that they've never really had a saving experience with Jesus Christ. They've never really turned from what they were before to become something new. And so that's why we go through this book. Because just as important as it was to the scattered Jews and the scattered Christians... Back in the day of James, it's equally as important to us today that we examine our faith. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, God, I thank you so much for the book of James. Lord. I thank you so much for your word and your mercy in that when we feel scattered, when we feel dispersed, when we feel... like we just don't know what it means to be a Christian sometimes and how to live that out, that you give us a very clear picture in Scripture of what it looks like to live out our Christian faith. So God, I pray that you would use this study to change lives, Lord God. That you would use this study to help us to know how to deal with persecution. Help us to know how to deal with our attitudes, and having a forgiving spirit. And most of all, that you would restore the joy of our salvation, Lord. That we would take pleasure in simply being a child of the King. So God, we love you. We praise you. We give you the glory, and it's in your name we pray.